Good evening, everyone. Uh, welcome to the Harvard Kennedy School and the John F. Kennedy Jr. Forum. I think we're in for a real treat this evening, and uh, maybe not quite what some of you expect. Uh, it's, very, it's my pleasure to uh, welcome our special guest tonight, uh, Carl Henrik Svonberg, Chairman of BP and AP Volvo, and Rebecca Henderson, the John and Natty MacArthur University Professor at Harvard Business School. Um, let me say a couple of words before we begin, because I know that there's been some rumblings, which is just the basic ground rules of the Kennedy School before uh, and the forum before we proceed. Um, the forum is our really one of the premier venues at Harvard. We, of course, like to think of it as the premier venue. We've had extraordinary people, often controversial presidents and prime ministers, scientists in general, people from business, uh, artists, and so forth. There's only one rule. And the first, uh, there's only a few rules. The first rule is that anyone that speaks at the forum must take free and unfettered questions from the audience, unfiltered, whatever. It is an absolute requirement. Um, indeed, I've been prepared to tell a head of state we were canceling the forum if they refused to answer. In exchange, the unambiguous rule is that they be allowed to speak in free and unfettered way uh, during the, point, uh, the part of the program that's designed for them to have a, a chance to speak or respond. Then, after that, People can ask questions, and you'll see there's microphones around. Uh, if anyone chooses to violate those rules and interrupt or whatever, uh, you'll be escorted from the, from the audience. So it's a very straightforward thing, and I think you'll find it's a quite interesting program this evening. Because it's estimated that world energy demands will nearly double in the next two decades. And by the way, nearly all of that energy capacity uh, will be used in developing countries as they transform from agricultural to an industrial economy. Um, the short and long-term future stra strategies that we undertake to meet this future demand uh, are absolutely critical, not only to their economic growth, but obviously to the global stability and environmental sustainability. So let me first introduce Rebecca Henderson, who, as I mentioned, is a university professor here at Harvard. Her work explores how organizations respond to large-scale technological shifts, uh, most recently in regard to energy and the environment, and clearly this is a place where that's going on a great deal. She teaches leadership and corporate accountability uh, and the field, su field study seminar, Building Green Businesses, in the MBA program. She received an undergraduate degree in mechanical engineering from MIT and a doctorate in business economics from Harvard. She sits on the boards of Amgen and IDEX uh, Laboratories, and she's worked with uh, both members of the Fortune 500 and small technology-oriented startups. Uh, she was retained by the US Department of Justice in connection with remedies phase of the Microsoft trial. And her work's been published in a range of scholarly areas, including her most recent publication, Accelerating Energy Innovation, Insights from Multiple Sectors. Our speaker tonight is actually an interesting example that uh, helps belie the often stereotypical view that uh, many uh, people have, including people at this school, of what it's like to be a chairman of a major company or whatever. Carl Hendrik Svonberg's experience uh, as a leader in both good times and bad um, has given him a unique and very well-informed and first-hand perspective, both on the fossil fuel side of energy equation as well as the renewable energy side. He currently serves as the chairman of two European Fortune 100 companies, BP, the third largest uh, energy company, and the Volvo Group, the world's second largest uh, truck manufacturer, among other things. He also serves, though, on the external advisory board of the Earth Institute at Columbia, and he's also a member of our Dean's Council here at the Kennedy School. He grew up within uh, the Arctic Circle in the tiny village of Porus, how did I do? <laughs> yes. Porus Sverige, Sweden, 
which is actually home of one of the largest uh, and oldest hydro hydroelectric power plants in the country. He earned his bachelor's degree in business from Uppsala University and his master's in applied physics uh, in the Lincolnping Institute of Technology. But quite importantly, he also played semi-professional hockey. And if any of you have been to Sweden or know Sweden, this is a very big deal. Now, you weren't a goalie, though, were you? As people Never have been, goalie. yeah, it would have been helpful right. as people have been shooting puck-like instruments at your face periodically. Um, the uh, he worked as an engineer for a number of years uh, and later worked for Securitas, Securitas, the uh, corporate uh, security company, becoming vice president in 1990, appointed as CEO of a lock manufacturer, 94, um, and by 2003 he was named CEO and president of Ericsson, the Swedish telecommunications company. In the two years prior to his taking over, Ericsson had lost uh, something like $8 billion. In the six years afterwards, he was able to turn around the company uh, through innovation, technological improvements, and sustainable business plans. In 2007, Svanberg initiated Ericsson's partnership with the Millennium Villages Project, whose mission is to lift African communities out of extreme poverty through innovative, integrated approach to development. Recognizing that mobile, uh, that mobile broadband sh could shrink the carbon footprint, Svanberg noted, quote, that if you really want to have a society that works, use communications to reduce travel and make the planet work for the long perspective. As part of that project, Ericsson aimed to bring mobile communication to the, and the internet to approximately 400,000 people in 10 African companies. Ericsson also developed innovative ways to power remote and resource poor uh, areas through the use of renewable energy technologies, including developing solar, phone chargers in the villages and so forth. Um, so, and his transformative approach to put sustainability on the agenda for the telecommunications industry and highlighted the impact of telecommunications could make in combating climate change. Greenpeace called him, quote, one of the strongest corporate voices calling for governments to act in the lead, in the lead up to the UN Convention on Climate Change in Copenhagen. And his pioneering efforts did not hurt the bottom line. By the time Mr. Swanberry left Ericsson, the company was operating in 175 different countries, 75,000 employees, and $34.2 billion in revenue. His considerable reputation for environmental leadership, however, was soon challenged. In April 2010, he made a momentous decision and chose to begin his tenure as a chairman of British Petroleum. Just four months uh, later, there was BP uh, faced a disaster of kind of unimaginable scale and consequence. Its deep water horizon oil rig exploded in the Gulf, and its underground well released nearly 5 million barrels before it could be capped. The spill caused extensive damage to marine and wildlife habitats, the fishing and tourism industries displacing uh, thousands of people from their livelihoods. BP, which had been hailed as an industry leader for investing in clean tech and renewables, now was held accountable for the largest accidental marine spill in history. In a June meeting, after several hours of negotiations with President Obama, Mr. Svanberg emerged from the White House to announce that BP had agreed to place $20 billion in a response fund. BP has obviously been extraordinarily active in working to, uh, to deal with this issue and many, many others. But Carl Hendrick, Carl Hendrick is also very much focused on the longer term and thinking about other strategies and how to deal with uh, energy and the environment in this rapidly changing world. He's a fascinating combination of background and insights from a town of 119 people in near the Arctic Circle. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, Carl Hendrix Feinberg and, uh, and Rebecca Henderson. Thank you very much. Well, thank you, David, very much. It's, um, 
it is really a privilege to be here. Uh, I am, uh, there are, I'm here both as a proud father of Jenny, who is a graduate from the business school just recently, but also as a very excited member of the Dean's Council. You can probably not find a place in the world that has so much brilliant people and people that has a passion for problem solving. So I'm certainly here to listen as much as, as to talk. And I will talk from the perspectives of the two companies that I chair, from uh, the Volvo, the truck manufacturer, and BP, the energy supplier. Uh, these companies do represent what we call uh, from the whole chain from wells to wheels. Uh, so let me first give you some context to my thoughts. In the past, the economic growth have more, have more or less come from the OECD countries. Uh, and it has benefited about a billion people. Now that has changed. We, uh, we are seeing the emerging markets. They have become the main growth drivers in the world. And the growth is driven by billions of people that are striving to reach the same standard of living as we very often take, take for granted. The UN Millennium targets that David actually touched upon to reduce by half the number of people living in extreme poverty has already been achieved. In all of this, energy is fundamental. Energy is fundamental to the journey of progress and development. And whether we like it or not, this means that we will need more energy, not less. So far, the industry has been able to rise with that challenge. And in the last 30 years, when the oil consumption has grown with more than 40%, we as an industry, we have found more oil than the world have consumed. However, we do need a realistic and open debate about energy and to establish a common ground for discussion. We cannot pretend, for example, that climate change isn't a serious issue, but neither can we pretend that renewables is the only solution. In seeking to set out a basis for addressing these issues, I will focus on three questions. What is the energy challenge? And secondly, what should be the policy response? And thirdly, what should be the response from business? So let's first talk about the energy challenge. It has three dimensions, sufficiency, security, and sustainability. Sufficiency, that is about demand. At BP, we project that the world's GDP in the next 20 years will grow with some 80%. And as a result, we expect the demand for energy to grow with some 40% till 2030. This equates to two times United States consumption of energy in addition to what the world is already consuming today. And this has led, this, all this new demand, extra demand, 95% is coming from the emerging markets led by China and by India. Our figure of 40% more energy needed is based on likely trends. It is based on trends of demand supply, policy decisions taken, about to be taken, or those that we think at best could be taken, and technology de development. It is a projection. This is not at all a, a proposition. 
And it's simply what we believe is the most likely thing to happen. So the first part of the challenge is to supply enough of energy to meet demand. Secondly, we need to discuss about security. Looking at demand and supply, there is a mismatch. For example, the US and China is consuming two times the amount of oil that it's producing. Russia, for example, is producing three times as much oil as it is using. Six countries in the world produce half of the oil we need, and three countries produce half of the gas we need. So it's easy to understand why governments are worried about the reliability of supplies. So the second part of the energy challenge is security. Now to the third part, which is about sustainability. And to put it simply, an increase in energy demand of 40% is likely to result in an increase in greenhouse gases with 25% or more. We must find ways to supply energy on the scale that is required while minimizing the environmental effects and without depleting important resources, critical resources, resources such as water. So what is then the response? What should be the response to this three-dimensional challenge? Well, many has a part to play in this, from experts in, academica, in academia to policymakers and to business. As I see it, the policymakers provide the framework. Businesses provide goods and services within that framework. Responsible business leaders want to build, to build companies as a force for good, but they also have to compete to survive. If governments want businesses to rise to a particular challenge and there is no obvious business case, they need to set conditions to make it happen. This is not an easy task for policymakers. They must and they do think long term, indeed very long term, but they serve governments that are elected on short term cycles. So here is another mismatch. Businesses, particularly the energy industry, also work on long term cycles. We often work over several decades. So energy sufficiency and security needs an effective framework, and governments need to promote competition and innovation. A great example is the shale and oil gas revolution. This has led US to the fastest oil growth in oil production outside OPEC. This was encouraged by a framework supportive of open competition market prices, research and development, and the same policy framework of competition and open access encouraged us in BP to invest in seismic technology that was needed to find deep water oil and gas fields. These developments have been game-changing. The US oil production today is the highest in 20 years. Domestic gas is expected to last for 100 years or even more. And as a result, imports of energy has fallen dramatically. So when looking for a framework for sustainability, the picture is more complicated. The market does not always deliver the best outcome for society. But policy 
can harness market forces positively. For sustainability, two things are important. Saving energy through efficiency and switching energy to low carbon sources. Let's first talk about energy efficiency, which needs to be addressed in a fundamental way. On its journey from production, conversion, transmission, and final use, the vast majority of energy is lost, mainly as waste heat. In fact, there are academic studies that suggest that this could be more than 80%. The potential for improved efficiency is therefore huge. It would, of course, reduce cost and emissions, and it would tackle sufficiency, uh, security, and sustainability. When it comes to switching energy, governments can and must act in various ways to encourage low-carbon use. It must start with setting a price on carbon. BP's preference, our preference, is to harness the market through cap-and-trade systems, through regulations such as the CAFE standards here in the United States, through targets such as the ones for biofuels, and through direct support such as tax credits for wind power. On that last example, in 1998, the US government made a projection for wind capacity by 2020 of 4 gigawatts. But policy support had a much bigger effect on business investments than expected. And in fact, already this year, wind capacity is expected to reach 51 gigawatts, literally off the chart of the forecast. In deciding how to act, it makes sense now to look at where the biggest issues are. Coal is the world's biggest source of emissions today due to its widespread use in power generation. Natural gas is the fastest growing fossil fuel and also the cleanest with half the emissions of conventional coal. Shifting from coal to gas is probably the most important action that we can take in the medium term. As an example, CO2 emissions last year here in the US fell with almost 2%. Switching to gas in power generation was a clear contributing factor. Let us now turn to transport, where oil is the primary fuel. Tough emission targets have been set, and the potential for improving of energy efficiency in combustion engines is huge. BP expects it to double in the next 20 years. And through more efficient vehicles and increased biofuel usage, oil consumption has already peaked in the OECD countries. But it will continue to grow in the emerging markets, and we expect the global oil demand to grow with 20% in the next 20 years. That is less than 1% per year. But then we need to remember that in existing fields around the world, they all show a natural decline of 4% per year. And this corresponds to half of Saudi Arabia's oil production per year. So there is a constant need to find, to use new technologies to increase the yields in existing fields and to find new reservoirs and new frontiers. In our most likely scenario, fossil fuel will still account for some 80% by 2030. 
And even if we look at the most radical scenario, the International Energy Agency scenario, the so-called 450 scenario, fossil fuels will remain the, the dominating source of energy. Non-fossil fuels, renewables, nuclear, hydro, is set to grow faster than any single fossil fuel, but it is growing from such a low base that in the medium term, it cannot move the dial much at all compared to efficiency and switching from coal to gas. We expect renewables to reach 6 7% by 2030. However, we must remember also that fossil fuel is not incompatible with a healthy planet. It is about the mix. It is about energy efficiency. Our position here is clear in BP. We support action by governments, individually and collectively, to limit emissions. We believe that the best way to limit emissions is to price carbon in order to stimulate efficiency and innovation. We support transitional incentives to help emerging low carbons become options to become commercial, become commercial at scale. So that's our thinking on policy. So what is now our response as businesses? Well, as an energy industry, we are at an inflection point with many doors opening at once. The shale gas have, have transformed the US and it is spreading. We continue to find hydrocarbons in the deep water. New enhanced oil recovery techniques are giving many depleted reservoirs a new life. New, new uh, possibilities are emerging in low carbon fuels and energy efficiency from cellulosic biofuels to gen new generation of hybrid cars. The uh, industry is broadening to provide more energy, but it's also deepening by working in more specialized areas. This poses big questions for companies like BP, the so-called super majors. We have operated everything from, res from the reservoir to the pump. You all know the, the, the uh, super majors, Exxon, Chevron, Shell, Total, ENI, and BP. The global reach of these super majors was seen as a strength, with the ability to replicate successful projects again and again over the world. But these old certainties no longer apply. The world is changing. We've seen the rise of the national oil companies, uh, companies like uh, Aramco in Saudi Arabia, Petrobras in Brazil, Rosneft in Russia, uh, Sanopec in China. These national oil companies are becoming more capable, both at home and abroad. In the early 70s, the, the largest international companies produced more than 50% of the world's oil production. Today, our share is less than 10%. Our role has obviously evolved, and our view as a super major, our view is that a super major can no longer be super at everything. We have to make choices. Where once the super majors were defined by scale, we believe the super major of the future will be defined by quality. Deep capability applied to specific areas of activity. For us at BP, this has been a natural progression. We had to develop specialisms to survive after the nationalizations in the 70s. We developed new skills in the frontiers of the industry, in the deep water and the giant fields, in the North Sea, in the Gulf of Mexico, 
as well as in the Arctic conditions in Alaska. And then, at 2010, we experienced a defining event with a deep water horizon accident in the Gulf of Mexico. We deeply regret the incident and the 11 lives that were lost. Today, to date, we have spent nearly 15 billion in the operational response and cleanup costs, more than 8 billion in claims to individuals, businesses, and government entities, and our task is not yet finished. We committed ourselves to learning, applying, and sharing the lessons we have learned from the accident to the, with the industry, the governments, and regulators around the world. We aim to emerge a safer, stronger BP that creates shareholder value in a sustainable way. We also remain committed to the US and to, the, and to our role in the energy industry. But our response is more than just in the development of our skills and specialisms. We have understood the challenge that I set out earlier. We see the role of the policymakers and the limitations that are placed on them. We see the rise of the national oil companies. And just as our role is changing as a super major, so is the way in which the board needs to operate. And I would like to end my speech with some reflections on the role of a board. Whether I'm sharing a board in Sweden or in Britain, the conversations are the same. We have seen the challenges from the financial crisis and the banking crisis. We have seen the concerns that have been voiced around the world about the role of companies and indeed the role of business. I truly believe that business is a force for good in this world by conducting itself in a way which meets the expectations of shareholders but also of society at large. It needs to build the most valuable asset in business, which is trust. Trust from shareholders that we can create value, as well as trust from society that we can operate safely and in the long term. We need to be responsible to our shareholders, but also responsible to the expectations of those whom we come in contact through our activities. I have led public corporations now for two decades, and again and again, I found that trust is the critical underpinning of all achievements. Also, board. boards operate differently in different jurisdictions. In the UK and in the US, shareholder value is in focus. In the UK, there was a debate some 10 years ago boards were, if boards were responsible to shareholders only or also to the broader shareholder, to the broader stakeholder community. The UK came up with the notion of enlightened shareholder value as a way to recognize societal concerns. It was in line with the concept of responsibility and responsiveness that I mentioned earlier. In continental Europe, and particularly in Sweden, the balance of interest between companies, government, shareholders, and society has been a stronger focus for quite some time. But whichever system is used, the modern board of a global company has to work in a way that allows it to do the things that only the board can do. And let's be clear on this. The board does not manage the company. The CEO does. The board governs the company. That's two very different activities. Boards need to organize its governance such as it can make sure that the company has the right strategy. 
that it understands the risk of the company and can mitigate them, that it has oversight of the performance of the company and the executive team, but above all, that it has the time to understand the challenging challenges facing the company short and long term, and it can set the tone from the top of what the that the company is a good citizen in the societies that it works. For companies like Volvo and BP, that means understanding the energy challenge and recogni recognizing the very role of those companies that they can play in working with policymakers and society to develop the right solutions. So in conclusion, let me leave you with six messages. Energy benefits society and demand will rise with growth. There is a geographical mismatch between demand and supply that will continue to create geopolitical tension. The world will continue to largely be dependent on fossil fuel in the medium term, and we need to go to new frontiers to find to secure supply. We can mitigate the environmental effect from fossil fuels through improved efficiency, energy efficiency, and switching from coal to gas. We must continue the research and development of renewables to make sure that we can provide the world with energy also in the longer term. And I believe businesses can be the glue that can tie it all together, but only if we have the trust from society to do so. So beneath those simple statements, there's of course a lot of complex questions. The policy tools, resources, technology, and investments do exist to address the energy challenge. And I must say that I am optimistic that we can provide the energy that is sufficient, secure, and sustainable into the future. So that was my part. Now I'm looking forward to your questions and to Rebecca to start it all off. Please. Carl-Henrik, that was a fascinating talk, and you covered a lot of ground. I definitely want to come back to your second set of questions about the question of the degree to which a business can demonstrate enlightened self-interest and the interplay between immediate accountability to investors and some broader sense of purpose. So I want to bracket that for a moment. And if I could, I'd like to come back to a set of questions you raised at the beginning of the talk. You said, and I completely agree with you, that the most effective way to make progress against the sustainability goals we face is with appropriate government policy. I think you said something I say all the time, which is, give me a price for carbon. Yes. I mean, that's the single thing we would like, and I absolutely agree. Let me ask you to take just one step further in the following sense. At least in this country, and I might be too uh, very much aware of the situation here, businesses do not play a neutral role in politics. And it, I would suggest that even BP does not play a neutral role in politics, even bracketing the Gulf. That's not what I'm talking about. In this country, for example, the Chamber of Commerce was quite instrumental in funding, um, funding uh, information purporting to show that climate change was not an issue and didn't need to be dealt with. The coal industry has been quite an aggressive funder of anti-global warming legislation. I would have said on the other side, BP, in fact, uh, at least one stage in its life, invested quite aggressively in public goods with very significant groundbreaking work in renewable energy, uh, trying to put those early technologies in place, spending a lot of time with governments talking about what that might look like. 
I wondered if you'd talk just a little bit about how you saw that messy and complicated interaction. Well, <clears throat> let me just say that uh, we have, I, I do believe with, with what you're saying, and we have, to, we have to keep our roles clear. We are not government. Government must set the, the framework in which we operate. Of course, it is our role, because we come across a lot of knowledge. It's our role to provide that knowledge as much as we can. And we work very tightly with regulators and policymakers to make sure that we give them as much uh, information as we can. I cannot judge whether, uh, I mean, America is maybe famous for, for a lot of its, its quite uh, strong lobbying activities. That is probably more than we, we have in, in Europe. But if you look at BP, we, uh, we were actually the first back in 98 to recognize uh, the, the climate change uh, challenge. Uh, John Brown made a speech back in, in 98 at Stanford that, that was at the time seen as quite uh, controversial. And today I think we all, everyone is behind that and understands that. We, we from that moment, we invested in renewable energies and, and, and we, we, have, we have continued to increase the investments in renewables and, and invest more now than, than ever, about one and a half billion a year dollars in, in investment in renewables. I wondered if we could turn now to this question of um, enlightened self-interest, doing the right thing and, and making money yeah. for shareholders. And I'm going to, uh, to quote from the Volvo website. Um, it is our firm belief that there is no contradiction between running a financially viable business while taking social and environmental concerns into account. We are convinced this approach will ensure long-term success for Volvo Group by reducing risks, costs, and seizing new business opportunities. Now, as I teach at the business school and look at these issues, it strikes me that, as a horrible generalization, the business school students are way too optimistic. They think, you know, business can solve everything, and yes, it's just enlightened self-interest, and here we go. And there are other students in the university, whose name will remain nameless, who say, you know, <laughs> business is basically, this is just greenwashing, this is a lovely thing in the annual report, but fundamentally, the short-term pressures on business, the pressure for immediate accountability, really constrains the firm in what it can do in these other areas without appropriate business regulation. I know, because I know a little bit about your work with Ericsson, that you've thought a lot about purpose and some of these softer concepts in running, in running companies. How do you think about this tension? Well, I, I think that there is more, we are more, that there, it, it's always good business to do the right thing. And, and I think that when you, look, when you look long term, I think actually that business leaders are more, much more long term than you sometimes get the feeling when you just read papers and being this quarter uh, capitalism and all that. Anyone that's sitting and leading a large corporation thinks very long term, thinks in 10, 20 years. It's another thing that you have to sort of survive quarter, on, quarter by quarter. If you don't survive, you don't, won't have the luxury of thinking long term. So of course you have to sort of uh, do that as well. And that has a lot to do with managing expectations and what have you. But I really think that companies that do understand the long-term challenges and stay ahead of the game has a bigger ability to compete. And, and Volvo is a good example, actually, that always, whenever they realize, and I just joined, so I, I cannot speak about it almost in third person, but 
when, when, whenever they see that there are new tough regulations, emission uh, regulations coming up, they want to beat that, they want to, they want to be out there with products before it happens, because they know it is good business. Do I have time for one last question? One last question. So, your answer is very encouraging. I can imagine giving an inspiring speech to the MBAs. Let me try and take it one step forward. When you have to give incentives to divisional general managers, to people on the ground running their businesses, how do you think about the tension between holding them accountability for performance, which is so important. That's, I think, one of the ways we maintain high performance in any organization. And yet, on the other saying, we do focus on some of these longer-term metrics and ideas. In a day-to-day -day basis, what does that tension look like? Well, it, it's one of the trickiest, uh, trickiest questions in a board and for management is how do you incentivize? The last thing you want to do is incentivize short-term behavior because that, that does not necessarily bring anything meaningful for the long run. At the same time, if you only have long-term incentives, you will end up with things that doesn't really matter for today. Uh, your, your incentives are a great tool of steering your, your, your behavior in the company in the wanted direction. So I think every company tries to find a balance of certain things that are more short-term focused and, and other things that are more long-term. But we all know that at the end of the day, it is our long-term performance that actually builds the strength of the company. Thank you very much. Thank you. So I will now uh, moderate the Q&A. And uh, so let me just explain the ground rules here. Uh, first, uh, good questions at the Kennedy School have three characteristics. Uh, those of you who are veterans will be able to cite them by heart. Let's not do it in unison, though. Uh, first, uh, you, give the, you should identify yourself. The second, a question is short, containing but one thought, one per question, one per, per, uh, per member of the audience, please. And finally, a good question ends with a question mark. So with that, why don't we start right here? between business and society, particularly in regard to social protections, both defers with the U.S., and do you have a preference, or, or so just your comments on that? Thank you. Well, America, to start with, is a very business-driven society. Business is part of the DNA, and, 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 and I think one, uh, there are some very interesting uh, differences, but also similarities. I actually think when I come from Sweden that America, for me, has been one of the easier countries to work in because, because we still are in many ways very, very similar. But remember now that Sweden has a population that is three quarters of Manhattan. So, so when you are in Sweden, I mean, you can, the prime minister, if the prime minister goes out there and says, we have a problem with this thing we have to fix, you can almost sort of see how people can come together and fix it. Of course, America, is, uh, United States is so huge 
So that's a big difference. But, but we, we do have a society where there is a, there is a, a uh, built-in, long-term uh, care for those that, that are not so fortunate. Uh, equally, we sometimes strive with the tax pressure that is so high, so we wonder if there is incentives enough to drive growth. Uh, America is probably a little bit more focused on, on business and, and, and lesser on, on, on welfare, but uh, I mean, both systems are, are, seem quite, uh, quite successful. Right up here. By the way, there are microphones in four locations, right here, right here, another one's up there, fourth one there. Good evening, my name is Auden Lawrence and I'm a freshman at the college and I would like to ask you the following question on behalf of the forum committee. Um, so stemming from a lot of the discussion which you had about the importance of government and policy um, and considering in the United States sometimes that unfortunately um, government officials deny um, the existence of climate change, how would you recommend um, or maybe say that government officials should better handle these policy decisions in the wake of this climate, sometimes of people denying the existence of climate change? Well, I, first of all, I, I think there is, from wherever I, I, uh, wherever I am today, when whoever I speak to, I think there is a pretty well-grounded agreement that, that we need to deal with climate change. That there, that it's not so long ago that there were people that said that's not an issue. I think everybody today feels this is an issue, and we need to do as much as we ever can. Uh, we have our, as I said in my speech, we, we, all these emerging markets, it's pretty fantastic that they are growing the way they are, and, and they should, of course, have the right to do so. That will require more energy. And that's why I think it's so important to find the ways to, on one hand, incentivize new renewables as much as we can, uh, because I think at the end of the day, uh, back to your question, but innovation, business development, research and development, I think that's where the answers eventually will lie. Uh, but I do believe that that uh, price on carbon is very important. I think if we get a price on carbon, we will have a much more realistic debate. I just leave you with one little quote that we often use in VP, is that we didn't leave the Stone Age because we ran out of stone but because we found better alternatives. And I think that's what's gonna happen also to fossil fuels. Can I just follow on with that a second, abusing my role here as moderator, um, which is you've been very clear, as, and you have for a long time, BP has for a long time, about the need for a price of carbon. And it's fairly common in, for business people, at least uh, in non-public forums, to sort of say, look, just set the rules and let us play within them. That's how yep. we can behave and innovate. But what you've just said is uncommon still in the business community, um, including those people who you might argue in the long run would benefit, people that are perhaps in the oil and gas business versus coal and so forth. What is the reluctance? Uh, is this really a difference in views about science across the community? I don't know, you know, to generalize. Or is there some sense in which we just, the problem in the United States, for example, might be characterized as, yeah, but that's all those lefties, and they're gonna they're gonna go and go crazy and make and run us out of business. Whatever it is, help me understand if that's really where business is and where they think long term. The science is pretty strong. Why don't we hear more of a of an actual dis, a, a call for a price on carbon as opposed to you know any any energy tax is just going to make it harder for you to feed your family, et cetera, et cetera. No, but I, I guess it is because uh, because there are big interests involved. And you have, a, if you put a price on carbon, some, some fossil fuels or some 
sources of energy will be more advantageous or, or, or better to work with. Others will be more disadvantageous. And, and, and therefore, you will find that there are big groups that wouldn't like that to happen. It is also a fact that it's, it's a lot about trying to understand the whole world's challenge because the, the, energy, the energy consumption in, 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 in our countries is no longer rising. So the whole discussion is really about what happens in the emerging markets. Okay, uh, next question right here. My name is George Mokram, an independent scholar from Central Square. Um, Bill McKibben recently wrote an article in Rolling Stone and one of the points that he brought up was that reserves of carbon-based fuels are about five times larger than what we can permissibly put into the atmosphere and still expect to survive as a species. So what price on carbon is going to deal with that issue? How do you deal with the stranded cost of having this resource and then having to keep it in the ground or else suffer the consequences. Yeah, the, the, uh, I, I think we can probably conclude that we have, first of all, we have found more oil, as I've said, over the last 30 years than we have consumed. And it continues to be the fact year by year by year that we find more and more and more. So it is probably right to say that uh, the, we, we, we probably underestimate the reserves. There is more and more and more. But we find them in more and more difficult places which means that it becomes more and more expensive to bring them to the surface. And this is back to my, my comment about we ran, didn't run out of stone. I, I think we, the fact that we have a, an oil price that is at the level it is actually means that it's, uh, on one hand, there is enough economy in, in bringing some of those reserves to the ground, uh, bringing them up, and therefore avoid that we suddenly sit there with a shock, an energy shock, where we don't have enough of resources. But equally, that it becomes competitive for renewables. And, and I think that, that is important. So we probably want if an oil price of, of, of this level. But I, I think it is right that in the world, if we really had a magic tool to look at where it is, we probably find that it's much more than we think. Right here. Yes, my name is Jonathan Pratt. I'm a third year student at Harvard Law School. Um, you mentioned that you think that um, uh, in, in the context of the, the oil industry that, um, oh, I'm sorry, I'm going blank. <laughs> um, oh, with the social responsibility um, and basically risk being a, a central factor in the Volvo statement, um, that taking on more risk kind of goes against social responsibility. Um, and so in the, the reverse of that is in BP's uh, uh, case, you're taking on more risk um, in going on kind of trying to squeeze juice out of a stone, and in the case of going into the Gulf of Mexico. Um, and you mentioned that what happened in the Gulf was a defining moment. Um, how did it redefine BP? Um, how are you redefining your position and your company right now um, based on that moment? And is it, as you take on more risk, are you taking those lessons into account? And do you think other companies are taking those lessons into account? Well, it, it's a, uh, it is a very important question. This is fundamental when you are in the extraction industry. Uh, it is, we have, a, when you deal with hydrocarbons, or if you deal with, with uh, uh, nuclear power, or if you deal with whatever energies we deal with, 
of the kinds that we, we, can, we, can, we can produce at the scale we need it, there are risks involved. So it, it's, all, it's not about whether we take on the risk or not, it's about how we understand the risk and how we're able to work with the risk and mitigate it and do it in a safe way. That is our responsibility. And, and we can only do so if we have the trust from society. If we don't have that, we can't operate. And therefore, it becomes a defining moment when, when, when an accident like this happens at the Gulf of Mexico. Of course, we, have, we and the whole industry have dr drilled for oil in the Gulf of Mexico for 50 years, and now it happened. And for us, it becomes absolutely fundamental, as it has been all the time, that we re go back again and we rethink everything we do, uh, everything, how we operate, how we're organized, how the work flows, how the, 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 the corporate values, our, our remuneration system, all of those things, because we just can't have another accident. Right up here. Thank you. My name is Yi Chun, and I'm an MPP1. So in your talk, you emphasized a lot about the importance of switching from coal to natural gas. And it has been said that we're entering a golden age of natural gas. So, but one of the concerns of natural gas is that support for it may displace support for renewables. So as a CEO of a company with business in both fossil fuels and renewables, can you share your wisdom on how to sort of reconcile um, or like um, these two issues. And if you have some time, can you also talk about your decision to um, shut down BP Solar? Uh, the last thing, I can start on the last one. We, we are very, we, we, are, we are as enthusiastic about solar as we've ever been, but the problem is our role in that was to manufacture glass panels for solar farms. And that has been just a, a competition with low-cost countries for solar panels. So, it, 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 it was no longer a meaningful business for us. That doesn't mean that we don't think solar has a good future as such. It was our role in that value chain. Um, the, what have happened now in, because of the shale gas revolution here is that we suddenly have an enormous amount of gas coming to the market. And it has, is actually uh, even in an oversupplied market, there are licenses awarded to companies that unless they drill and produce in a certain period of time, they will lose their license. So they may go and explore and bring even more gas to the market, although it's already oversupplied, because that's a way to keep your license. So, so we have an artificially low price probably right now in the US. It'll come up a bit. But it won't take away the fact that while we have an oil price that is basically even around the world, it, we have a gas price that is three times higher or four times higher in Asia than it is in America. And that has created a unique opportunity or a situation in America where gas as an energy has become very cheap. And, and I think we have to, we'll have to see a little bit how that evolves. It, it is, seems likely that the gas price must come up a bit. But of course, when energy like that becomes, uh, becomes cheaper, it will have effect on other projects in, in the industry, and the gas price here is a local one. It's not a global, global gas price, but it will have effects on other projects, I'm sure. Right over here. Good afternoon. Thank you for your speech. Uh, my name is Raiko Radovanovic. I'm a freshman at the college. Um, you mentioned at one point that BP invested about half a billion dollars in renewable technologies just this year, and, and my question is, which technologies? Uh, where, where is BP putting its money in terms of renewable technology? We, we are investing about a, a, a one and a half billion. And what, what we do, we have, we have always worked with solar, wind, uh, biofuels, and carbon capture. Uh, 
with, uh, solar I talked about, carbon capture seems very difficult, so that's still experimental. So what we basically do is, is wind and biofuels. And, and wind, we have about, of that 51 gigawatts that I mentioned that is installed right now in the US, we have two gigawatts here, which is a lot, actually. Um, biofuels, we, are, we run biofuel farms in Brazil, but we, the most important thing we do is invest in research and development of, of uh, new forms of biofuel, because it's still not efficient enough. We want to go to what, what is called lignocellulosic or butanol forms, which is, is better from a corrosive point of view for the engine and get more efficiency out of the biofuel. So that is basically where we put the money. Say a little bit more about biofuels and where things are headed. We, you know, of course, some of the ways in which we've used biofuels in this country have been controversial and, and perhaps even counterproductive. Yeah, the, the, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to claim I'm a, I'm a uh, specialist on biofuel, but biofuels is interesting. Biofuels, by the way, just so we understand it, oil, oil is not a poison. Oil is, oil is the vegetation from the dinosaur's time. So, so what, what we do when we produce biofuels, when we say it's a zero carbon uh, emission, is because the, when we grow the sugarcane, it absorbs the CO2 that we later emit. So in that circle, it's, it's zero. And of course, if we have hydrocarbons, oil and gas, we, we did absorb it millions of years ago. Uh, the bi biofuels as such, we can only grow so much. If we, we, we don't, even in the most aggressive scenarios, we don't see that be more than, it could at best be 5% of the oil production by 2030. And that means we need to use enormous amounts of land. Uh, and, and of course, we cannot have biofuels compete with food production or, 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 or other things. Uh, and it's actually quite difficult. You have to, we have, we have fields in, in Brazil, but you have to have the right temperature, the right uh, humidity rain, you have to have the right uh, so, uh, sun. Uh, you, you, you basically, from the moment you cut your, your sugar cane, it loses 10% of its energy content per every hour it takes to get it into fermentation. So there's quite a lot of prerequisites that need to be in place. You cannot just go anywhere and produce your biofuel. So you have to be in, and, and therefore, maybe it can, maybe at the best it could do 5%. I understand if, if climate change uh, moves world water problems significantly so that we have pressure on agriculture, that would significantly increase, yeah. further increase the pressure on the available land. Yeah, that's also true. Okay, we have time for two more questions, right here and right here. Go ahead. Thank you. Um, my name is Frederick Stromsen, and I'm a joint degree student, Swedish joint degree student. Yeah, you actually. look like a good Swede. I can uh, see that. At the, uh, here at the Harvard Kennedy School and at the business school. Um, and my question for you was, in your personal opinion, if you look at alternative renewable resources, which one of you in the medium to long term do you find the most promising of them? And do you think that they ever can constitute a major share of the world's energy production? Or is it energy efficiency and, and gas is the way to go? I, I think the energy, energy efficiency, I'm sure we can do a lot. And, and if we look at, at what has been accomplished already from emissions point of view and energy efficiency point of view, it's extraordinary. Then it takes time for the car fleets to be, uh, to be changed and so on. But I think from energy efficiency, I think we're still only the beginning of it. So I think we can do really a lot. Uh, I think also the whole, whole question about switching coal to gas is big. That's a big, big matter. 
Uh, when it comes to uh, uh, renewables, uh, I, one, one question which is not the renewable, but, but one question I'm sure we could debate a long time where I'm not at all an expert is, of course, nuclear power. Where is nuclear power and is, is there a way to do that safe? That, of course, have a lot of advantages, but also that mega risk element that we saw in Fukushima. Uh, we are not seeing for the next 20, it's hard for us that a long term, long time horizons in this industry. It's hard for us to see any significant breakthroughs in the next 10 years or 20 years when something completely new comes to market. But if you go beyond 2030, certainly something will happen. Some game changer will come somewhere there. But so far, I think we're, we are there with our biofuels and our, our wind and solar, and that's, that's what we can do. So that would be the last question. Hi, uh, so I'm, my name is Luca, I'm a student at the college, and my question pertains to BP's new role in, uh, as a partner in Rosneft. Uh, and that is, how does a super major like BP uh, balance its mission of maximizing shareholder value against interests of the partner, which is the Russian state, which might not always be so shareholder oriented, or you know, in particular, historically, more of a exercise in political power. Well, I, that's, uh, that's a good question. I, first of all, we should remember that Russia is largely dependent on their oil and gas industry for their, for their economy. So in that way, they have the same interest as, as we do in creating a more efficient company. When we, uh, when we came to Russia, we, we came to Russia back in the 90s, but when we invested in T and KBP, our, our joint venture that we are now ending, we, uh, we came in there and we invested $8 billion. We have then got $20 billion of dividends and we're selling it for 27. So we have six times the money in eight years, all of which is actually the results of an efficiency program that we have taken th that company through in bringing it from an old-fashioned Russian type of asset into a more modern oil company. And, and oil and gas company. And that is what Rosneft is seeing. So they are eager to get everything we can do. And here there is no, there's no contradiction. In, in they just want to create an efficient company that has the right processes in place. They're also focused on, on, on uh, environment and, and, and doing the right things. They have, they, 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 so, so far it seems like that we have very, very overlapping agendas, but, but we are early on and uh, it's going to be an interesting uh, next couple of decades, we hope. Thank you very much. Very much appreciated. Thanks a lot. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Rebecca, thank you so much. Well Thanks a lot. Thank you.